formation. He's going for the corner. He's got it. Texas is back. The kicker. The kicker comes through. We're back. Welcome to the Fire Tom Herman podcast, your overreactionary Texas Longhorns football fan podcast. I'm your host, Josh, joined by producer Tux as my co-host for today's episode, and together we make up the FTH podcast, No PS5 Club. We're recording on Thursday, November 12th, which is officially the launch date for the PlayStation 5, and neither one of us have been successful in getting one. Tux needs to basically complete this recording of this podcast in a hurry, because the next wave is coming up on Walmart.com, right? Yes, it is, but I have some bad news. I'm not a robot, so I don't think I'll be able to get one. I believe in you. Like you believe I'm a robot? I mean, I believe you're better than a robot, Tux. Oh, thanks. Well, um, just like the Texas defense couldn't get any, any you know, turnovers, I can't get any PlayStation 5s today, I guess. Guess not. But to pass the time until the next wave of PS5s comes out, let's just record this podcast. Let's talk. We got a bye week this week. We had that West Virginia game... Just this past weekend, the defense, I thought, had a really good game. I think that's a good place for us to start. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We've been, oh, at least I just kind of gave up hope for the defense, considering new coordinator, a bunch of new players, or players moving positions and all that. And I figured all that was going to lead to a pretty atrocious defense, especially once I saw the Texas Tech game. But, you know, the defensive line has really rounded into form, even though... Keandre Coburn uh, looked like he sprained his ankle or something like that. He went down early in the West Virginia game, and the defensive line really didn't miss a beat. They had Alfred Collins, Mauro Ojomo, and then Sweat just making plays, and they look legitimately like the best defensive line in the conference right now. And that's backed up by uh, Pro Football Focus. I think I saw a tweet from Brian Carrington after the game that currently... Of the top five individual defensive players, uh, individual defensive linemen in the Big 12, we have second through fifth, second being Joseph Osai, and then, yeah, three other guys in the top five. So that's, I mean, that, that alone shows how good this defensive line has been playing this year. Even though they had some rough games early on, they've really come into form they are certainly the strength of this team. I think Noah said last week that it was the strongest unit on the entire team, and that seems to be the case, and it seems to be continuing to play out each week. Oh, yeah, and then one final thing I want to mention is that we're kind of seeing the light turn on for Overshone. I did not expect this at all, and you know, credit has to go to the new linebacker coach, Coleman Hutzler. Hutzler, Hutzler. I think you know what I mean. Um, he's done a great job moving Overshone from the big box safety he was to an actual linebacker, and he's finally kind of figuring out his role. He's seeing what the defensive line is allowing him to do, and he's just cleaning up as a result. And it's been good to see him on social media. He's been really excited about not only the the feedback that he's been getting, but also just the the way he's been playing. I think there was a lot of concerns in previous years with Overshone because it had always been discussed wanting to make him an, into a linebacker. And there were always these talks that, well, if you do that, he's he's going to transfer. He's not going to be happy and, and all of these sort of things. But 
seeing him on social media and on Twitter posting memes and videos, basically celebrating how much fun he's having in the role, how much success he's having, is really good to see. Because not only have has he successfully made that move, but he's gotten that mental buy-in as well. And, I mean, we're, we're seeing him grow into possibly the second best player on the defense by the end of this season, I think. Wow, that's pretty bold. I didn't mean, I'm trying to think of the second best player right now. And I'm having a little bit of trouble. So yeah, I mean, maybe, it's got to be someone on that defensive line, right? Oh, easily, yeah. Um, but, you know, they're all so good and consistently playing well, it would be hard to pick who is second best after Osai. Um, but I, I wanted to bring up one point. Um, you don't get player switching positions. You don't get, like, all of these benefits unless the players are bought in to what the defensive coordinator and the head coach are selling right now. And, you know, all credit goes to Chris Ash. His defense uh, is starting to round into form midway through the season. And um, that, that I think, has a very, very positive sign for next year. Whether Chris Ash is the defensive coordinator or not, I think it's going to be um, something that you can uh, point back to and say, hey, look, he came in here with a shortened offseason and he got program buy-in. A guy like Overshone, you know, he could have transferred and played safety somewhere else just because purely that's what he may have wanted to do. Instead, he bought into the program, trusted the coaches, and now he's reaping the rewards, and so is the team because, from what I understand, they've basically kind of decided on Mitchell and Overshone as their linebackers, and that's paying off well right now. Yeah, it... In addition to Overshone playing individually well, it seems like both he and Juwan Mitchell are on the same page. They're playing well, again, cohesively as a unit. They're playing well as the two linebackers who are out there on the field. They feel like they can trust each other, and they're able to make plays because they're not having to worry about what's the other guy doing, which, again, like you said, with the shortened offseason, that's insanely impressive. I think this would have been an impressive transformation for DeMarvion Overshone especially, even if we had a full spring and fall practice for him to get into this. So the fact that he's coming on in the middle of the season, playing at the level that he's playing without having had that offseason to really prep him for all that, makes it one of the single most impressive bits of coaching, at least at a positional level, that we've seen at Texas in a long time, I think. Yes, and one thing I do have to bring up, um, the past few offensives that we've faced have not been very good. Uh, One issue that I always had is that these linebackers early on in Big 12 conference play, they had no idea where to drop to in the passing lanes. They had no idea how to cover slot receivers if, you know, they were matched up against them. So that would be interesting to watch once they start facing someone like that. Although I don't know if there's anyone left on the schedule who can challenge them that way again. Um, Because that's something that uh, maybe only Oklahoma could do right now, at least. Yeah, it's it's definitely basically Oklahoma. From here, you've got Kansas, who's Kansas. You've got Iowa State, who, outside of Brees Hall, basically doesn't have anything on offense. Brock Purdy has been downright abysmal this year. And then Kansas State looked pretty dangerous when Skylar Thompson was in, but once he went down and Will Howard took the reins, they just haven't looked nearly as potent as we thought they were going to be. Yeah, and I'm not trying to get too far down the road here, but this could set up for a very nice stretch for the defense. 
there isn't an offense left that scares you. And, well, and hopefully that remains true just because it seems like our cornerbacks remain a weak link on this defense. So if there's any team that can simultaneously play good defense and then make otherwise middling quarterbacks look like superstars for a game, it appears to still be our cornerbacks who are, are capable of making that happen. Yeah, I think so. The but one other thing I wanted to mention is that um, Caden Stearns is also not playing the best ball of his career. Maybe he's banged up. I don't know, but he's making some mental mistakes that he usually hasn't before, such as the one big play that West Virginia had was when they got a slot wide receiver in single coverage with Caden Stearns, and the wide receiver ran a slot fade route, and, I mean, he had so much space because Caden Stearns, you know, gave him that leverage and that space to the outside, not realizing that he had help on the inside, and that's where he should have pushed his receiver towards um and that's a that's a jarring mental mistake coming from what has thus far been a very intelligent player so i'm not sure what's going on with him and as well as the cornerbacks like you know they're very athletic cornerbacks but they're they're still not the best now again west virginia doesn't have a number one guy that can challenge you like that uh certainly not a tyler wallace uh, on the west virginia roster but that that is something to to watch out for. Yeah, and and again, that's that's something else that sets up well for the defense. Just knowing that Kansas, that Iowa State, that Kansas State, none of those guys have a real number one wide receiver that can challenge like Tylan Wallace or like apparently anyone who straps on the Oklahoma colors apparently can do in, in Lincoln Riley's offense. Seems like just about anyone can suddenly be a dominant receiver um, with that system they've got going there. So, yeah, it, it's it's hard to get a good read. It'll be hard to get a good read on how our cornerbacks are playing over these next few games, knowing full well that they aren't exactly being challenged by the wide receiver core across from them. Oh, yeah, and that pretty much plays right into Texas' strengths. So I, once again, it, it's setting up to be a good November and December for for the defense, as long as we don't see any more major injuries. And speaking of major injuries, I think we all need to pause, take a moment of silence. The kicker from down under, the punter, cousin of the original punter, Ryan Bushevsky, out for the rest of the year with a torn ACL. Just as he was really coming into form. I mean, he had a big game against Oklahoma State, and he was pounding it against West Virginia until he went out. So get well soon, because we'll need you next year, no matter who the coach is. Oh, yeah. Uh, His two kicks today, easily some of the best of his career. And without him, um, I'm not sure if, you know, West Virginia gets contained like they do. Yeah, I mean, that... Straight up, the the two kicks you're talking about look straight out of the Texas Bowl, down to Josh Thompson being the one to field the punts. Uh, he Josh Thompson was down there, basically the gunner on nearly every single punt that Ryan Bush, or that Michael Dixon had against Missouri in the Texas Bowl, and then Ryan Bushevsky had Josh Thompson hanging out catching catching the uh, punts that he was coffin cornering. It it was a he was putting on a clinic and he was. Punting well last week, like I said, against Oklahoma State. 
so he he's everything seemed to have clicked because it seemed like in previous games he was good for one shank, a few middling punts, and then a few really good ones. Like even Oklahoma, even against uh, who did we play before Oklahoma State? Pretty sure that was Baylor. Baylor, that's right. He had he was boomer bust in that one. He had like three oh, yeah. punts Terrible. get downed inside the ten, and then also shanked three of them. So. He was finally getting that consistency that basically defined his cousin's career, uh, at least the, the later part of his cousin's career, because there were obviously some hiccups the first couple of years with uh, Dicko as much as there were with Bougie. But it is really disappointing because he was rolling. I hope that he gets healed up. I don't know if they said whether it was his kicking leg or his plant leg. I assume it was the kicking leg that he tore the ACL on, right? I mean, does it matter? He can't really punt anyway right now. Well... No, he can't punt anyway, but as far as recovery, I don't know if it if if it was his kicking leg, you worry a little bit more about whether or not he comes back at that strength, whereas if it's the plant leg, maybe there's a better chance of recovery. I'm not sure. Uh, I'd have to go back to check, but I, once again, I mean, it's a heartbreaking injury for a player who is rounding into form. Yeah, absolutely. Um and especially when the offense is scuffling like it has been the past several weeks, having a punter like Ryan Bushevsky was playing the uh, past few weeks becomes critical because even if your offense isn't able to turn things into a, a, a solid drive, the defense is going to get a lot of energy watching your punter flip the field regardless of where you are on the field. Yeah, and one other thing I wanted to mention, you know, special teams before Bougie's injury was uh, also kind of rounding into form because we have Jameson, who's an excellent return threat. You know, blocking was still kind of iffy, but, you know, you can say that if the punting became good and if Dicker, you know, continues to be what he is, uh, you know, you have a pretty good special teams unit, which no one would have said after the first three games. Yeah, especially after that Oklahoma game was a complete embarrassment for the special teams, especially for the the punt coverage unit, uh, getting blocked, getting nearly blocked a couple more times. It was rough to start the year, and it seems like things are settling in. There are still a couple close calls here and there, but yeah, in, in general, special teams has been much improved over the past several games. And speaking of much improved... Or maybe he was this good this whole time. We have to give a shout out to B. John. Yeah, that that one run that basically I don't remember who our commentators were uh, for for this game, but basically busted a nut watching him run was amazing. You you shake one guy out of his shoes, or you you spin move one guy, you stiff arm a guy into the dirt, and then you ride a guy with a stiff arm for about 15 yards, supposedly get pushed out, show us the tapes, because I do not believe that that man stepped out of bounds and got robbed out of a long touchdown run that he deserved after the way he, how hard he ran up to that point. But that, that was one of the best plays I've seen probably from a Texas running back since Deontay put his like hand in the ground against Notre Dame in 2016 to stay upright and score on a 30 yard run. Okay. I got to say from my rewatch, it seemed like, okay, in the first initial viewing, like, Oh, where did he step out? But, um, I think his part of his heel touched outside and that was it. And it really you really harsh in my vibe by I'm telling sorry. me that the man I'm actually sorry. stepped out. But look, 
that guy had a, a man, you know, holding down his face mask, and he still threw that guy down. It, I mean, it was it was a literal game of inches moment, you know? Like, if his heel just doesn't, just doesn't step out, that that's a long touchdown run with uh, how many guys? Like, three guys that he, uh, three broken tackles? Like, that's incredible. And I can understand the hesitation about not wanting to give him more carries, but... I mean, if he's playing like he is, you, it would be a disservice not to play him more. That would be his play on, especially on that specific play. Just the strength he showed to break through all those tackles, bordered on being good enough to uh, get that commendation. What was it? Bo Jackson had that that run. Was it Bo Jackson, or am I thrown off? But the the one, my goodness, a freshman, just running through a pretty good West Virginia defense, one that generally is fundamentally pretty good. But yes, we need to see more. I keep calling for Bijan. Bijan somehow has not reached the end zone yet, which blows my mind with how well he's played in a couple of these games now that he has not been the guy to get the rock in the red zone and score on a, even just a short run. But the way we keep doing this, eventually his first touchdown run is going to be like a 65-yarder where he breaks three tackles to get there. He's trying, man. He's trying so hard. And, you know, you can say, like, oh, he's a freshman. You know, they don't want to ride him into the ground. But, come on, we have a bye week coming up. There's no excuse not to give him 20 carries, at least. Yeah, don't. Yeah, exactly. Don't, don't run him into the ground, but he's obviously the hot hand. Why are we not feeding him more? I understand Roshan's going to come in and spell him a little bit, but, I mean, come on. But there's when when he's rolling, he's rolling. When you're hot, you're hot. Just keep feeding him the rock. And you don't even have to give him carries, you know, inside the tackles. Like, you know, use him like. Uh, I mean, he seems like a very good receiver. He's not good at pass blocking, but he seems like he can at least. If you can get the ball to him in space as a receiver, he's going to make somebody miss, or he's going to make something happen, and. He's trying to. Um, he's still trying to get a feel for the speed of the game, but it's coming. It's coming to him. So let it come to him. Let let him make those plays. Um, I, I wish they used him more on screens and stuff like that, just just to get him more involved um, outside of the tackles. But we'll see how they continue to use him. And being able to use him on screens or even just swing passes uh, or the wheel route, like what sealed the game last week. Just giving Sam that outlet receiver where he feels like he can dump it off to this guy and get six yards, easy yards, I think would help this offense immensely. Just maybe it'll break Sam out of this funk where either his option is uh, go to Jake Smith or heave it down the field and hope that Brennan Eagles doesn't lose it in the sun. Because this, this, this pass offense is struggling hard and has struggled hard basically since the UTEP game. We have not been impressive throwing the ball since then. Oh, I completely agree. Um, I'm not sure if or I'm not sure if Sam Ellinger is also hiding some sort of upper body injury. He's, you know, alluded to the fact that he has several lower body injuries going on, especially I think to like um, his knee or his um, his calf or something like that. Uh, don't quote me on it, but and he just looks so off because the alternative is you know, saying that he's regressed back to his freshman form. 
which I don't think is quite fair, but um, something's clearly off about him, and uh, I'm not sure if the bye week could have come at a better time. Yeah, he, he definitely needs to get heal- healed up, because if we're going to keep taking deep shots, I like I, I can appreciate the aggressiveness, but when we're missing these deep shots, like we spent most of the first half with these throws not even being close sometimes, and it makes it really hard to get the offense into a rhythm when on second and six where you're ahead of the chains, you're on schedule, and then you bomb it down the field, incomplete pass, and now you're in third and long and back off schedule. This offense is not at a point where it's really conducive to their rhythm to just keep taking shots even when it's obviously not working. I don't know. Um, I'm of two minds of that. I mean, I want my quarterback pushing the ball down the field. It's. I think you can look back to two or three plays at least that should have been touchdowns if Sam was just a little bit more accurate or if the receivers didn't... Um, lose the ball you know what I mean but uh, I I don't know I I want my quarterback pushing the ball down the field Um, it just it seems like uh, the decision making is still sound so I'm okay with it it's just not connecting and we've seen this time and again with Sam Ellinger where you know he had this in same stretch in 2018 where he just could not complete a pass past like 20 yards downfield but we we stayed with it we stuck with it because we knew that it was still a good decision to push the ball yeah I mean it is you're not wrong I going downfield is a good decision I just if Sam is that injured to where only maybe like 10 or 20 percent of the time is the ball actually accurate enough especially like it was in the first half to do anything with it, it seems like you're just basically throwing away attempts to keep a drive going. You're killing your drives when your quarterback is clearly not able to make those throws. And that's where it gets maddening. Is Because knowing that that is the right thing to do is to be aggressive and push the ball down the field, but knowing that we're not in a place where we can consistently, even at like a semi-reasonable rate of like even 33%, 40% of the time, hit those correctly, that's where it gets extremely frustrating. Yeah, I can understand that. It's um, it's a bit of a process versus results argument, you know? Absolutely. And, I mean, those receivers are just, ugh, they, they need to improve badly, whatever it is. Um, I mean, they've looked off all year long. Yeah, and... I mean, even with the game-changing talent that Jake Smith can be, he's still got issues with drops. Brennan Eagles hasn't seen a pass that he can't try and catch with his shoulder. It, Yeah, there's, there's so many little things. Because I think Andre Coleman has actually done some good things, especially just for the general physicality of the receiver room. But there's still a long way to go uh, to be able to successfully replace Colin Johnson, Devin DuVernay, and I think to a certain degree this offense still just misses little Jordan Humphrey. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not sure if they're more physical this year than last year, especially because you look at guys like Josh Moore or Kai Money or Jake Smith. They're, they're not very good blockers. They don't even try. But um, Or Brennan Eagles, who he can have a defensive back who's like six inches shorter than him and it looks like he could speak for a ball. So I, I'm not 
I'm not quite sure what exactly it is that Andre Coleman is focusing on, if I'm if I'm being clear. Yeah, well, and I think that's part of it is that there's so many things that need work that it's hard to necessarily nitpick any one thing. He can't yeah. just correct one thing because the other holes are so glaring that it doesn't matter that you did that that particular part right. Like, even if he gets it to where these guys are beating man coverage every single snap, just absolutely torching guys, all anyone's going to see is, holy fuck, we dropped another pass. Uh, I think the other big thing to talk about, um, mostly just because there were a lot of West Virginia fans crying about it by the end of the game, was the no-call defensive pass interference uh, on their fourth down play in the red zone, basically within, what was it, like three minutes to go or something like that. I think we can definitively say that by the rule book definition, that was 100% defensive pass interference. Yes. But... West Virginia fans can shut the fuck up because the refs were consistent about that. Both teams got away with that type of contact across the middle like that all game. I don't think there was a single defensive pass interference flag thrown. So the refs pretty much just let them play. And to count on them suddenly deciding to be inconsistent just because it favors your team in that moment is stupid, annoying, childish, and basically defines everything that we've come to loathe about the West Virginia fan base since they joined the Big 12. I think I remember one DPI. It was on Tariq Black over the middle. If you remember, he he kind of he caught that ball with the, like his hands way away from his body. Oh, that's right. Where that's they right. Held down his jersey, but I mean that one was like a so obvious you have to call it kind of moment. Um, but uh, again, like you said, it, the refs are being pretty consistent, and that's all you really want. So. I can understand why West Virginia fans are upset, but, you know, suck it. And the one thing that upset me was the broadcast. They were talking about how, oh, the refs, you know, screwed West Virginia with the DPI non-call or the backwards pass that wasn't or the drop touchdown. But outside of the DPI, the other two, they they were very clearly... um, Clearly right good call. calls. Yeah. The over the overturn was the right call. And a bunch of West Virginia fans were, for some reason, under the impression. Well, not even for some reason. I know what it is. It's every Big 12 team does this shit where they pretend like we control the refs and we are all powerful and we've never had a call go against us. And they always give us the borderline calls. Though, neither of those was even borderline. Like if you actually took the time to like think for five seconds not even five seconds, just watch the actual video, what actually happened. Both of the ones in question there uh, were clear overturns. That was 100% the right call, no bias. Yeah, I I completely agree. But again, it's everybody in the Big 12, you know, playing victim over Big Bad Texas, even though it's pretty dumb. Yeah, we have not been the conferences, the member of the conference that's been getting babied for quite a while probably the better part of the last decade basically since about what was it i think 2012 when we got that got away with one against oklahoma state uh where we fumbled right at the goal line basically since then we really have not gotten babied and we have honestly gotten screwed a lot more than i i would say would have been you know standard it they're bad calls all the time, but there are some of those games that are just unbelievably yeah. slanted one way. 
and people still have the balls to be like, oh, Texas gets all the calls. Like, no, motherfucker, we get all the calls because we get all the flags called on us. Oh, yeah. We've easily been the most... Well, I mean, we've been undisciplined. I'm not going to say we haven't, but yeah. We've had a lot of calls, especially like that Oklahoma State game with Charlie Strong. That still gets me mad. So I, I don't really understand it, but again, it's just the victim complex. So whatever. You guys can cry about it on your way back home. 100%. And speaking of every other member of the Big 12, I think every other member of the Big 12 in our position would be looking at effectively having two bye weeks because you've got a bye week this week and then you have Kansas next week. Any other team in the Big 12, not worried about Kansas. Texas, even though this is clearly one of the worst Kansas teams, they're missing Puka. Uh, Their starting QB from last year that lit us up is gone. And everything about this on paper says blow out, blow out, blow out, get the offense rolling, get uh, Casey Thompson some snaps in the second half. Maybe we could see Hudson Carter, Jaquin, and Jackson for a series late in the game. But we have found a way to make every single Kansas game close under Tom Herman. Yeah, exactly. Well, there was one 15-point win, but other than that, the average margin of victory between Texas and Kansas since Herman took over is eight points. That's one possession. It should not be that close. Yeah, so... Basically, it's going to be either everyone is going to be insanely frustrated because we play Kansas close again, or if we do manage to have a comfortable win, people are going to complain that it wasn't comfortable enough, it should have been by more, and then even if it is a blowout, it'll be like, oh wow, look, Herman finally figured out how to do one thing right. And it's been a long time, admittedly, since we've blown out a conference opponent, but I mean, everyone wants to see that progress. Everyone wants us to start beating the teams we're supposed to beat. We failed to do that against TCU. Oklahoma early in the year was playing pretty poorly, but I think everyone at this point knows, everyone in this fan base knows that it really doesn't matter which two teams enter the Red River shootout. Shit can get wild no matter how good or bad either side is. But this is an opportunity to prove that, hey, we can put away a team that is supposed to be Power 5 level. Yeah, well said. Um, and, you know, just looking ahead, not just past Kansas, like Iowa State looks like they're in a funk offensively and seem like um, it seems like our defense is playing better than theirs currently. And then Kansas State, they have a bunch of COVID cases. They don't have their starting quarterback. They have decent special teams and defense, um, as Kansas State usually does, but um, their offense just doesn't inspire any confidence at all. And, uh, I mean... Not not to, like, look too far ahead, but you can see a scenario where Texas sneaks into the title game, and then it's Texas versus OU for a second time. And that scares all of you who are still on the fire Tom Herman train, which, I mean, we've been on that train for a while, but, but that makes you a little nervous. Like, on one hand, you're like, well, I, I do want to big win the Big 12, and I think most of us have that opinion of, look, I really don't care who the coach is as long as we're successful. But it's going to be very confusing if we sort of limp our way to this Big 12 title game and somehow manage to pull that off if all of the next four games are unconvincing wins. It's going to be like a, we finally did it, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like it will have been deserved if we don't find a rhythm and find a way to control these games for the last three weeks of the regular season. Yeah, it's it's ugly football. 
I'm not saying it's unwatchable, but I mean, sometimes it kind of is. So there's just nothing that you can point to and say, oh yeah, that's that's excellent. Like you can... The defensive line. Maybe, right? But even in the first few weeks of the season, they were up and down. I like it. But now, remember, now do, I yeah. feel like they're pretty excellent. Yeah, but do you remember how we were all like kind of doom posting about how we didn't have any sacks or pressures to go along with this excellent defensive line? I mean, there was a little bit of that after Texas Tech. I, I definitely will not deny that that existed. And Oklahoma. And Oklahoma. And TCU. Oh, yeah. But since then, it's settled in nicely. Yeah, yeah. But like I said, I mean, it's all inconsistent. It's never been put together in one package in one game against a quality opponent. And that's what you expect of Texas. It is. And the last thing that we need to note about Kansas, I've brought it up on previous episodes. uh, But be aware that this Kansas game will be four years plus a day since we hit rock bottom under Charlie Strong and have hopefully started on something of a trend line back up, even if it hasn't been nearly as smooth or uh, sort of vertical as we were hoping. But uh, just be aware that during this broadcast, they will inevitably show several replays of the field goal, of the interceptions, of the fumbles, everything about it. They're going to be talking about it because it's nearly exactly the anniversary for this game. But on that very happy note, we've reached the end of the episode. Thank you to everyone still listening. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at at the FTH podcast so you can tweet at us to let you know that our liberal agenda caused you to unsubscribe as well as give us any other feedback you've got. Also follow Hornscast on whichever podcasting platform you are listening to today. And that'll give you a heads up anytime we post, anytime fourth and five posts. And pretend we're football. That's going to be back real soon. College shooty hoops just on the horizon. So we'll see you again after the Kansas game to react to what happened in that game. Hopefully good things. Hopefully it won't be close. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. But until that time, Tux is going to spend his time looking for a PlayStation 5. I know he's about to hop off here and probably has a Walmart tab ready to go uh, right now, waiting for me to stop talking so he can start trying to buy a PS5. But also, hook him. 